The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Deepa Purushathaman had a huge corporate career. She described herself as a productivity junkie, and she said her superpower was outworking everyone else around. For decades, Deepa ignored pain and signals from her body and just pushed through until she couldn't ignore it anymore. And then Deepa started talking to other women of color who'd reached high positions in corporate America, and she discovered a shared sisterhood of women, women who seemed powerful, who were excellent and well-paid and had big titles, but who felt powerless in the face of biased and patriarchal corporate systems. She found a sisterhood of people acting in, performing, excelling, but never feeling powerful, keeping feelings of rage and anger and shame and frustration and anxiety shoved into their bodies. Now, Deepa helps those women let these feelings out and experience their authentic power in a healthier way. Deepa Purushathaman is an author and speaker. She's co-founder of Information, a community for high-achieving women of color. And she wrote the book, The First, The Few, The Only. My first question, Deepa, is when you started realizing that women, women of color, face more toxicity and trauma and mental health struggles at work. Was it something you always knew or is something that came on? I think it's something I've always known. I think that there wasn't as much conversation about it, you know, growing up or even, you know, rising in my own career or, you know, places around me. So I think for a lot of us, there was denial Mm. that that is in fact true. So I think some of us felt like some of the experiences are different and there is a, a different layer that is happening. But because the conversation feels like it's much more in the public domain, it's more accepted, it's more widespread, it's more commonplace. I do think there's a different layer of, you know, that really kind of settling both into the mind and the body. Some of the conversation really became clear to me as I interviewed women for my book. So I interviewed over 500 women of color in writing the book and obviously have met thousands since. And I just started to see such patterns in the conversations. And so that's when it was absolutely like, this is a thing. This is what I have to talk about. This feels so clear. It's really interesting, right, that we kind of know, but there's so many things in our lives that we're told to put aside, or maybe it's not that bad, or it's not that true. And so I think for a lot of women of color, I found it's that dissonance between this is happening, but it's really not that bad, or we're not supposed to acknowledge it. Is it just me? And then it be, you know, becomes clearer. You even said that women of color, and they act in on their bodies yeah. instead of acting out. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So what I found in the research is that two out of three women of color I interviewed had physical manifestations of illness. So not just stress, not just, you know, uh, wanting to take, you know, a, a vacation, right? Mm-hmm. We're not just talking mental health and well-being, but because the stress has been so pervasive and so long, it's showing up in their bodies. And 
for some, I know I call this small, but I don't like that term. It, it shows up in smaller ways, right? Maybe it's a headache or maybe it's, you know, hives. But for so many of the women, it was it was so much heavier and so much bigger. It was showing up as, you know, heart issues. It was showing up as stomach disorders. And so, yes, this idea that I think maybe women, a lot of us take the stress in and it shows up in our body. Whereas I think a lot of men, you know, just from the conversations I've had in therapists I've, I've talked to, act out, right? They're allowed to be angry. They're allowed to express that in a different way. So I do think there's something different that shows up. Yes. You wrote almost that they are ingesting ideologies that lead to their GI problems. That made that yeah. made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I'd love to hear about your own body story. You wrote that you had trained to think of yourself as an elite athlete and that you ignored how your body felt. Although I would argue an elite athlete is actually doesn't ignore how their body feels because they have to take care of their body. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know it's a great point. It's it's <laughs> interesting. It's that it's again, that's a little bit of dissonance, right? I think it's more this idea that you push through. You know, you push through the pain. I think that's really a little bit of what I meant by that sort of statement. This this idea that, you know, you just gotta keep going. Just keep going. And that you are a productivity junkie and that your superpower yeah. was outworking everyone else around you. Yeah, I used to really believe that. You know, I never thought, and I, you know, a little bit my own story is I joined, you know, Deloitte, a large global services firm out of grad school, and I was the only non-MBA in my 700-person start class. So I felt always a little bit like an odd duck. I was a little bit younger, too, because I had gone straight through. And so there was a sense of a very clear sense in me that I wasn't the smartest. I didn't know the most. I didn't have the most experience, but I was willing to ask questions, and I was willing to work really hard. And so I think there was a sense of, I can outwork people. And I don't think it was a conscious idea as I was working. It was more it came through as I was writing the book. Like, I think that I was a very hard worker. I could, you know, work 16 hours a day and not have it, you know, affect me, I thought, right? And and so I think that became like a through line or story in my own, you know, rising that I could, I would work really hard and it wasn't a problem for me. From what I read, you, you made partner. You were a very young partner, right? Yeah, I made partner in my early 30s. So yes, it was young. I actually stayed for about 12 years. So I was there for a while. I think it was more once I got to a certain point and I tell the story in the book, I started to get really sick. So I'd sold the biggest project of my career. I just got married. I'd moved across the country. All these like layering sorts of activities or events had happened all within a space of like six months. Mm. And all of a sudden I'd sold the biggest project. I'm working 100 hour weeks. And it had become too much. And my body started to, you know, those small symptoms, it started as skin rashes for me and hives. And then over the course of nine months, kept mounting and mounting. It took me about four to five years to figure out that it was late stage Lyme disease, because a lot of doctors don't diagnose that, especially on the West Coast very well. Mm. And it had gotten to a, a pretty extreme situation. Like I ended up having to take eight months uh, leave of absence. I couldn't feel my elbows down and my knees down. I severe neuropathy. I spent a lot of time in bed. I was I was getting sick like every 10 days. That's when I really started to seek out doctors because it would it would be like infections or it would be, you know, I would catch a virus like every month I had something and it just became like this can't be normal. It was interesting. A lot of people said, well, you turn 40. This is what happens when you turn 40. And I said, this can't be turning 40 because I feel like I'm dying. Like This is really wrong, which is a whole nother right, uh, challenge with women and especially women of color in the health system. Mm -hmm. And people didn't take you that seriously or they didn't have yeah, the creativity. I, was right? I looked great. You know, I looked healthy to them. You know, I was in this great job. Again, that idea of outworking, like I could put on the makeup and I could do my hair, like I looked functional, right? So people didn't understand, but I was really struggling with energy and, and even just feeling okay. When you got treated for Lyme, 
what happened? It took about three years. So it's been a long process. I traveled the world. I call it, I just did a a speech about this. I call it wisdom seeking. You know, I think with Lyme, it's a little bit more complicated than other diseases, right? Like think for cancer and other things, we have clear, you know, diagnoses, we have ways to test, we have clear protocols. And Lyme, one, it's hard to diagnose. The tests are sometimes not conclusive. There's a lot of feeling that, you know, for a lot of people, I've heard a lot of doctors say people are making it up. It's not even real. So there's just a lot of controversy around it. And so the approach you take isn't really clear. And so I traveled. I went all over the world looking for different things because I had so many different symptoms, right? Stomach issues. I couldn't digest food. I had all these headaches. I had skin rashes. I had, you know, the neuropathy. And it took a couple of years and it took a really slowing down. I think for me, it was this acknowledgement that maybe I was out of alignment with what I wanted to be doing in the world and what I should be doing. And I loved my job, you know, but I never believed I would be doing it forever. I never thought I was doing my life's calling. I just was good at it. And so I stayed and I moved quickly and I was really successful. And I think some of that out of alignment started to show up right in my body. And and so, yeah, the Lyme, I think, you know, I I talk about this book was really a gift in a lot of ways because I think it was pushing me. I I don't think I would have left the job that I was in had I not had the physical manifestations, right? Because it was easy to stay and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do what my purpose later, right? When right. I retire. <laughs> Did you feel that being a partner was a piece of your purpose that you had been raised or expected to do? Yeah, it's interesting. No, you know, I think mm. it was something I was doing just to maybe fill space or because I didn't know what else to do. You know, I was lucky enough, like, again, I, I didn't have this early in my career, but after about seven, eight years of partner, I just started asking questions around greater purpose. And I was surrounded by women who I thought had found theirs, really inspiring women who were doing, I I felt like more social impact sorts of activities. And I always looked at them wondering, like, how do they know that was their thing, right? How do they know that was their purpose or their calling? Because for me, it wasn't so clear. I didn't have this, like, this is what it is. And I think I was waiting, to be honest with you. (laughs) Horrible thing to say, but I think I was treading water. I think waiting for like that epiphany of this is your life's purpose. I now know, right? And I, I, don't, I haven't talked about this a lot, but I now know it's one of those things where I don't know for all people it's like that. You know, mm-hmm. I think I had to just follow a different path and I can have many purposes. And, you know, this work feels very fulfilling. I know it's touched a lot of women. I get a lot of feedback, but I wasn't that clear sort of this is what I'm going to go do with my life sort of situation. You didn't have that sort of dark night of the soul when you were so sick and the thought, this is it. I have to leave and go start. No, no, because when I left and when I was sick, I was really just searching. I was trying to make sense of like, what is going on here and what's happening? And so much of my work now is realizing that I think a lot of people, I say women, but I think this is people. I've been on enough stages having this conversation that I've met and others coming up to me afterwards. I think most of us don't deal with our issues, right? Whether that's health, whether that's our families, whether that's our relationships until crisis happens. And I think especially at work, like we have all been taught or a lot of us have been taught, I shouldn't say all, but, you know, I was taught right from an immigrant family, this idea of work hard, sacrifice, security comes with a great paycheck and, you know, a a good job. I hadn't really stopped to question. And it wasn't until for me, it was a health crisis. But I think for a lot of people, it can be a family crisis. It can be, you know, you didn't get a job. You were you know, promised after doing all the things you were supposed to do. But it's like some injustice happens in your life. And that's when you start to question, like, I've done everything I was supposed to do, right? Like I ate well, I exercised, and I still had a heart attack. Like, this isn't fair. This is wrong. Like, what do I believe? Like, what am I doing with my life? That's when I think a lot of us get to a different set of questions, a different set of answers. And for me, it was health. But, you know, I, I think it was uh, that question of purpose was always there. 
I agree. I agree, especially I think in mental health, also people end up, you know, in a very deep mental health crisis before they are able to take space and take time and, yeah. and be proactive. You say that now you're really adept at paying attention to how your body feels. And if you get hot or flushed or you get a sort of nervous, fluttery stomach in a meeting, you know that that's a signal that your body's telling you, telling you what? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of us, and I, I sometimes use the word corporate, right? Corporate America, but I think this is true in workplaces. We've all been taught to be, I think, collegiate or to be nice, or there are you know certain behaviors that you might have outside of work, but they don't really belong in work. I used to lead by my gut. I don't think I had that word before, that understanding before. I would just trust my instincts, you know, sometimes we say. But for a lot of us, it's so based on logic and rationale and data. And what I've started to really realize is that my body knows, right? Our bodies are wiser. I actually just spent a week with Seth Guru two weeks ago, and he's all about, right, the body is where the wisdom lies. And I think that in workplaces, we've been taught to ignore that, right, or put it aside, or that's, you know, that's, that's more new age, right? You shouldn't pay attention to it. And so in meetings, yeah, when I work with women of color, especially, I'll say, like, listen to your, your gut. Like, if something feels, someone says something and you feel uncomfortable, there's probably more to that. You need to unpack it. You know, I choose not to fight every single battle when someone says something inappropriate or, you know, racist or microaggressive. But I will sit with it now for about 10, 15 minutes. And if I still feel uncomfortable, like that comment still doesn't feel right, I still feel a little bit heat or anger. And I know mm -hmm. now, right, in my body, if it's in my belly, it's probably shame. If it's a little bit higher, it's anger. Like I know now enough of that connection. But if I still feel bad in 10, 15 minutes, I will say something because I know that I'm going to ruminate on that for the next, you know, two to four days. So yeah, it's like listening is a, it's a, it's a good radar detector, right? We don't always listen to it. Wow. So, so your belly is shame. Your heart is anger. Where's anxiety? Yeah, I think anxiety for me, and I, you know, there's some research on this, I think is more in the limbs, you'll see. Mm. Um, a little bit of that flighty feeling too. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, you know, this is not my space of work, but there's a lot of therapists and others that there's diagrams that you can go look at and see if this is true for you, right? And so much of it is tied to how we grew up and where we felt those feelings when we were little. And a lot of us disconnect from those feelings in order to cope. And so it's it's kind of realizing, no, those are actually mechanisms, right? Those are actually signals and we should pay attention to those. Yes. I have a couple of guests who have talked about, you know, kids get stomach aches, right? And so they, right. when they were kids, they had sort of mysterious stomach aches. And as adults at times of great strain and stress, this stomach aches would come back mm. in this sort of, you know, almost very vague way, but very painful as well. Like what is yeah. a stomach ache anyway? But yeah, it was really a signal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I've always had migraines ever since I was 12, 13. My mother mm, had them me too. too. So I thought they were more hormonal. But I think I'm realizing now, like if I really pay attention, the pain and the stress starts in my shoulders. It gets really tight. And over the course of like 20 minutes, it'll turn into a full-blown migraine if it's that you know sort of stress event. And so really paying attention to that. Like if my shoulders start to get tight now, like if I don't stand up or if I don't do something different, I know where it's heading. But again, I wouldn't have paid attention to that in my corporate job, right? I would have popped some Tylenol and kept going because that's what we do, right? But, you know, a couple of cups of caffeine, like, let's have some coffee and some Tylenol. We'll keep going. But now I know it's a little bit different, right? I have to treat that differently. Yes. Yes. The process of tuning in. And for you, it was getting so sick that gave you permission to start tuning in? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You wrote that a lot of the women that you interviewed are almost in a constant state of hyperarousal, of threat assessment, of fight or flight. 
Can you tell me more about what you heard from them? Yeah, you know, I think that what we don't understand enough is this concept of trauma, especially when it comes to racism or history or that a lot of this is, you know, passed generationally and we have not really understood or talked about that enough. And so for a lot of the women of color in particular, and again, I I do interview a lot of white women as well, but I think there's a different level of trauma or a different level of denial even that happens at work about some of these things that are happening for women of color. And so what I have really uncovered or really what I'm starting to understand more is how that really shows up and how that's really trauma, I think, in a lot of ways. And it's not just that's uncomfortable or that's a one-off event because this happens So again, let's just say racism or comments of not being enough is really a common message I heard with women of color. They've been taught since they were little girls, right? They're not pretty enough. They're not, you know, light skinned enough. They're not smart enough. You know, they're not going to be the things that we tell a lot of white little boys, right? You're going to be successful, a CEO, a doctor, you know, politician. (laughs) You're you're, going to do all these things. We don't tell that, especially to black and brown little girls. That message is so ingrained. And so when things happen at work, again, like, you know, do you have the right credentials or, you know, people just assume so many of the women I work with haven't gone to the right schools, mm. don't have the right experience because a lot of us look younger than our age, right? It ends up showing up in really different ways. And the weight of that, the layering of that, how often that happens. Again, we've, we've denied it because we've been taught to kind of push through it. But I think it's a, this question of trauma and how that shows up and then how that shows up in the body. And, and we haven't really uncovered that enough. No. One woman in your book said that she worked so hard and she always thought, once I get a seat at the table, I'll be mm. able to really be myself. Yeah. So she masked, she masked, yeah. she worked so hard to try to fit in and she did make partners. She did get a seat at the table, but it wasn't really a happy ending, was it, in terms of her finally getting to be herself? Yeah. I mean, so many of the stories are about that, right? I think one of the most common things that I find with women of color is the masking, the level of masking, right? And I think it's one thing to mask consciously. You know, I'm starting to write a little bit about this. My next book is on fairy tales and workplaces. (laughs) But this idea of Goldilocks, right? This idea Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm sharing too much. I'm sharing too little. Like for so many women, and again, I think this is true for everybody, but even deeper for women of color, how much do I share? How much do I uncover? And we don't have conversations. We haven't been told how much to share. And then we get told, especially Black women get told, you're not sharing enough, right? We don't get to know you. But then there's parts that it's not safe to share, right? So we don't share those things. And so it's this dance. And so, yeah, there's a lot of covering. There's a lot of conforming. There's a lot of messaging direct and indirect and what's acceptable, what's appropriate, what's executive ready, executive presence. Those things don't look like people that look like me. So a lot of us have, again, unconsciously and consciously, adapt and edit to get ahead. And I think it's really that understanding of how deep that runs, how much that makes you feel like you don't belong. And that's a lot of what we're talking about in the, in the pain and the trauma. Performing, excelling, but never feeling powerful. Yeah, that's how the whole book started. I, I was trying to figure out what do I want to do next and starting to gather women of color. I wasn't feeling well, but it hadn't gotten to the point where, you know, I was spending the eight months in bed. And it was just more casual conversations. I'm going to be in New York, right, for an event. You know, can we grab a, a group of women and have a conversation? Those ended up being about a dozen more intense conversations across the country, right? And again, not women I knew. I would just, you know, show up in a city and, you know, try and organize a dinner and 20 or 30 women of color would show up. And the first one we did was in San Francisco. And that is what a public company CFO said. She was a black woman. She was what I call a uh, white passing black woman. That's what she called herself too. Meaning like you would see her and you might not know what she is by ethnicity or background. 
And so she was a public company CFO. She was probably at the time she was at her dinner in her early 60s, you know, close to retirement and really looking back. And she said, Deepa, I've worked in the financial services industry. There was a lot of racism, a lot of things that were said in boardrooms and in C-suites. And I never corrected those things because I didn't, one, want to bring attention to myself. And two, I was the only woman. I was the only, you know, Black woman. I was the only woman of color. Like, I just felt like that was a lot. And I was trying so hard to fit in. And I regret that I didn't say anything. And so she said, I, I realize now I sit in the seat of power and I don't feel powerful. And for her, that was because she hadn't spoken up, right, about these incidents. But for me, it was not feeling, you know, well, right? It was being sick. For other women, it's hiding you know, trying to juggle, you know, their kids, right? Trying to trying to make it all work. But the sense that there was a universal feeling of these women sitting in really powerful seats because I had some really senior women in the room and not feeling powerful. And how do I how do I unpack that? Because that that still gives me chills when I think about it. like why are we're doing all this, we're sacrificing all this, we're in these really prestigious seats and yet not feeling powerful. Like that doesn't feel like how we should want people to be. That doesn't feel like a healthy way to live and doesn't even feel like a good way for companies to have us rise, right? Because if we're not feeling powerful, we're not bringing our best selves to work. What a cycle of anxiety, because the sense of feeling powerful is is, is a quest and it keeps moving yeah. down the road no matter how hard you try. Yes. Yeah. And, that, and I think what's most interesting to me was, I think a lot of people enter thinking, well, I'll just sacrifice small things early in my career, right? And when I get to the seat, then I'll do it my way. And part of what I want young women to realize is if you don't exercise those powers early, it's really hard to turn it on later because there's almost more pressure to comply and edit and to not speak up and not rock the boat when you're in the VP seat or higher because there's so few of us, right? And so that's the tension I think we don't talk about. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. One of the things that I thought was really unusual and really interesting about your book is you did you did focus on leaders who are women of color by and large. And I'm curious, to your point, that it, it doesn't get easier necessarily to be authentic or to speak up when you have more juice in the organization. What did you find that some of the biggest triggers or issues that women of color in leadership positions in particular tended to deal with? Yeah, you know, hands down, the biggest one was when they did say something, right? So let's say there was an, an issue of something racist happened at the company or someone appears said something. And I had at least eight, you know, and I when I say eight, I mean eight, like C-suite women say this in almost exact same story. They would speak up and kind of report somebody for inappropriate behavior and the company would turn on them because all yeah. of a sudden it became, you know, more scrutiny for the company. I think that was the most fascinating thing. And these women were women who had spent, you know, at least 10 years at their company, had really made a name for themselves and been so supported. And yet when they were speaking up about changing culture, which they thought, you know, is the right thing to do. Our company cares about these yeah. things. There was a lot of backlash. So that was, I think, the most surprising thing that these women in seats who thought they had power to change culture had been taught they had power to change culture when it really came down to it there wasn't really an ability to change that because everyone wanted them to just let it go or it wasn't that big a deal or why are you making such a big deal of this and this being racism. I think that's still a challenge for a lot of companies to address. Minda Hartz has written 
the women she works with, Black women, are brokenhearted at work. Yeah, it's interesting. I interviewed all kinds of women. I expected the Black women to tell me we were taught how to deal with racism at work. We were going to be told, you know, it was going to be bad and these are the things to do. I think they'd been, at least the women I interviewed, had been taught about racism, but not necessarily racism at work. And so I think the brokenheartedness comes from, I think we've all been sold, again, this corporate fairy tale, hence the next book. That, you know, these spaces are fair. These spaces are a meritocracy. These spaces, if you work hard and do the right thing, you know, you'll be promoted. It'll be okay. And again, because until the last two years, we haven't had permission to tell those stories, Mm -hmm. a lot of women haven't. So there is this belief you're going to go into these spaces and as long as you work hard, it'll be okay. And again, I think a little bit more reality check with the black women, but again, across the board, the sense of it'll be okay. And it's not. And again, because of the moment we're in, I think there's more discussion about it than ever before. So I don't think it's change. I think it's just more transparency on how widespread it is and how deep it is. I think that's what's different. And that's where the brokenheartedness comes from, because I think it's realizing this relationship you're in, right? Because work is a relationship, is not meeting your needs and is probably a little bit abusive and is not equal, right? And so that's a really a hard lesson or a hard truth for a lot of women to come to. Yeah, it doesn't love you back. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about two of the concepts in your book that I found extremely powerful. The first is the notion of buying into delusions, that we all buy into delusions in order to basically keep showing up. We almost have to. And the second is the concept of shedding Mm -hmm. on the path to healing. Can you introduce both and talk about both? Yeah, you know, delusions, aka fairy tales, (laughs) stories, narratives. Are these ideas of how we've, you know, in the in the book, it's about how we've been taught the workplace should work. But delusions, I think, are just things that we can believe about anything. And for a lot of us, they, you know, and this is where, you know, back to little black and brown girls, I think we're taught early what those things are. We're taught how we should be. We're taught how the world works. Some of that comes from stories. Some of that comes from our family. Some of that just comes from, you know, media. So those are the delusions. And what I say in the book is there are delusions on how we've been taught the workplace in particular should work that I don't think we've ever stopped to really question. Why are those the way that they work? So, for example, this idea of scarcity, right, That and, and competition. So many of the women I interviewed don't want to work that way, don't even believe in that. But where does it come from and why do we all accept it? And why do we believe that's how the workplace has to be? You would note this as an example of, you know, there being theoretically only room for one person of color, one woman of color at the top in the sense that it's it's competition rather than a collaboration to to get more. Beyond the health question or the health issue, like right, two and three women being sick, the other most surprising thing I found in the book is at the end of my interviews, I would do hour, you know, 90 minute interviews, I would say, is there anything else you want to share? And the women would look down if we were in person, look at their feet, or if we were on Zoom, they wouldn't make eye contact because there's shame involved in this. And they would say, can you talk about how we don't support each other as women? You know, white women to women of color, but even, you know, women of color to women of color, and then even within our own communities. And I believe, and we've done some work, the company information that I was a part of with Billie Jean King and her foundation to explore this. We interviewed 1,700 women. And I think a lot of that idea of competition comes from this idea that there's one seat. There's one seat at the table for a woman or a woman of color in a C-suite or on a board. And I don't think it's something that we all have been taught directly, but it's just there, right? I found it in so many of the women I interviewed, they all believe that there was only going to be space for one of them. 
And for women of color, you know, and, and, and Ra, my business partner and I, we've done a TED talk on this. We've been taught it's it's probably a broken chair too, right? A, a broke ass <laughs> chair is what we say in, in, the, in the work we do with Billie Jean King, because it's not a full seat with full power. And so, yes, I think that idea that there's one chair or one of us is going to get to the C-suite cause of competition unconsciously and consciously. And that's a delusion and a narrative that we've bought into. And we have to be, as a group of women, really conscious of not, not buying into that going forward. So that, that's really where that comes from. Right. And not men, of course, buying into the scarcity myth that if women, especially women of color, are coming for their jobs, that it will erase men's power. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I see in inclusion and right, we're in this moment where I think there's this pendulum swing back to, you know, is inclusion as we have layoffs and other things, it's still a top priority for companies. But part of why I think it's been challenging in a lot of the, you know, large companies I work in is because there's a sense of this is for women or this is for women of color or this is for certain groups. And the white men are questioning, how does this apply to me? And is this taking power away from me? And so one of the biggest things we have to realize is that we can't do inclusion work without white men being part of that conversation and realizing this is not about taking their power away, but this is really about questioning some of the underpinnings we have about power overall. That's really what I believe. What other delusions surround power at work? Yeah, so for the women, it seems to be more about it has to be top down, it has to be aggressive, it has to be, you know, used for some sort of nefarious purpose. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily collective, right? There, there all these negative perceptions. So when you talk to women about power, they will literally sit back in their seats or they're not want to talk about it. It's not something good deep. I don't want to talk about that. And I interviewed women globally. And so that that's actually a universal sort of feeling. But if you ask them, you know, can we talk about the ideas of power, but in a different way, they'll say, I want it to be collective. I want it to be used for good. I want it to be used to, you know, open up spaces or to actually give us more, right? To counter the idea of scarcity. So I think part of the challenge with power is we have been taught it's a certain way. And by the way, I think there's like maybe a dozen books on power that most of us grew up, you know, being taught and believing, like Machiavelli's Prince, right? Or yes. The 48 <laughs> Like there's really interesting, like that's the doctrine on power and it's aggressive, it's assertive, it's masculine, I believe, it's top down. I actually once before a speech, I Googled the top best-selling business books of all time mm -hmm. because I wanted to make the point that I didn't see myself in any of them. Yeah. And they're all by white men and probably Lean In is in there. So that, And they are all what I would call very extroverted slash aggressive models. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the two huge points in that, right? One is who do we see as a thought leader and mm -hmm. a leader with a whole different conversation? And who do we give <laughs> space for, right? Again, because if we believe that, we're going to give the same people more and more space, more permission. And people that look like, you know, you and I are especially not going to be given that space. But mm -hmm. then, yes, I think this idea that it has to be that way, that it has to be top down. And I think as we have more people, right, more space for leadership to look differently, I think you're starting to see that Leadership can have more empathy, can have more caring, it can be more collective. And again, I think COVID helped show us that countries that led in that way sometimes had women leaders, you right, did better, they fared better. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is something to be said for that. So I think that's really the shift that we're in. And that's why, you know, yes, this work can be really heavy, but I'm also really optimistic because I do feel like we're in this moment, this, you know, next few decades where I think a lot of the things we have believed are shifting because they have to, you know, because the world is making them, right? The world is hitting its extremes on a lot of different fronts. And so, yeah, there's maybe a moment to really reevaluate. What do we believe? What do we taught? What do we, you know, what do we believe in? What are we teaching our children, right? And what do we want to believe about how we work and how we live and even how we love? 
So let's talk about shedding. Yeah. So there's this concept in the book of shedding and carrying, right? So that we need to shed messages that don't serve us and carry forward messages that do. And for the women of color I meet, we have to shed messages that we can't or that we aren't enough or that, you know, the way we lead or the way we look, it's not enough. And again, those messages start young and they're always there. And it's hard to shed these messages because they're ingrained in who we are. And when I work with women, I end up finding it's not like hundreds of things that we believe, right, that are our limiting beliefs or that Mm -hmm. are things we need to shed. It's usually about six to 12 things. And they're things that come up when we're moments of crisis, right? Let's Mm -hmm. say you're driving down the highway and your car stops working. And you have to pull over to the side and now you're you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. In that moment of crisis, it's like, what voices do you have in your head? Is it your fault? Did you not take care of the car? Did you not put enough gas in there? You're stupid. You're silly. You're not competent. It's messages that came up when we were children, to be honest with you. And so once you understand what those six or 12 messages are for you, again, listening in moments of crisis, you can reprogram those things. You can shed those things because they don't serve you as adults, right? But they are the ones that play on autopilot if we don't actually take control and really think about it. So that's what shedding is about. Like, what messages do I believe? How do I live my life? That is just what I'm doing on autopilot that I don't want to believe anymore. There's been research on people of color in the workplace and their higher levels of anxiety, which makes perfect sense. The notion that is tricky for me when I think about it is that there are many, many social and systemic factors that create people to feel anxious. And of course, racism is a huge one. Everyday biases, feeling like you don't belong, feeling like you don't have power, feeling like you're never going to be able to rest because it's not good enough, that are causes outside of your control. But we feel this anxiety so personally. And these causes outside of our control, as you say, tap into the voices that we may have also been telling ourselves since we were little children and that we learned in the most fundamental years of our lives. And so it creates this sort of very, very toxic mush of anxiety drivers that are both in the system we work with, but also in ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's back to that, you know, the, some of the conversation we had early earlier in this in this discussion. I think that a lot of the women that I interview are tracking for threats, right? They mm-hmm. are in their workplace trying to get their work done, they're code switching, right? So this idea that you are conforming or editing yourself to fit in or in the culture and in the workplace around you. And again, for women of color, a deeper level of code switching. I, I think everyone code switches, but a deeper level of code switching. And then you're just kind of tracking for threats, right? And for a lot of the women I talk to, they've been taught that's not that bad or you should ignore that or you're gonna have to push through. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of like, did that just happen to me? So that's kind of a lot of the word or the language that comes up. So it's constantly looking around like, was that what was just said? Is <laughs> that really harmful to me? I wasn't given this opportunity. Was that on purpose? It's questioning your reality. So that's, I think, where the anxiety and the tracking and the, yes. the hypervigilance is really what it is. If that's where it's coming from. Right. Did that, did that really just happen? Yeah. Was that a big deal? Am I taking it too yes. personally? Yes. And so I think what you're finding and, and what the research shows is the reason that I think a lot of women of color are feeling this moment, the heaviness of work, the trauma in a very different way is because until recently, there's been denial that it's happening. So now that there's more widespread conversation that there is, right, systemic challenges, there is more oppression at work. These workplaces that were supposed to be agnostic, right, of these issues, there mm-hmm. is racism at work. Our bodies are feeling it because we're being told, yes, it's true. Like everything you thought was happening is actually really happening. And so that's a different layer of realization and feeling in the body. And so I think that's really what it's tied to. 
But I think, again, it's always been there, but it's been this, is that just me? And now we have this universal conversation happening where it's not just me, right? It's there, there are challenges and differences for different groups in the workplace. Right, right. But I think part of the body stuff is the level of chronicity also and the long-term yes. impact of this weight. Yes. And just acknowledgement of it. I think that's what I'm trying to put words to, right? Mm. It's 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 different when you think it's happening, but you push it aside, right? Almost like back to that elite athlete sort of idea, right? What, mm-hmm. Well, if you just kind of push it aside and push through, it doesn't maybe take hold of your body. It's still, it's still affecting you, right? You're still getting sick, but you're not acknowledging it. Once you have your diagnosis or once you have a protocol, <laughs> it's like a different layer of like, I am actually sick, like I'm going to have to deal with it. So it's like, it's not that it's not there, but it's this layer of acknowledgement, I think, is what's shifted for people and is why this moment that we're in is a little bit more challenging because we're finally acknowledging the trauma versus kind of pushing it aside, right? Pushing it under the covers. Yeah, we're naming it. We're naming it. You wrote that toxicity is not just a mental health issue. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's back to that idea that it's showing up physically in our bodies. And it's very new research. I just did a piece for MIT, you know, earlier this year. And I want to say at the time it came out, there were only probably three or four articles like that out in the world. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to see, right, the Surgeon General and others talking about how, you know, not only workplaces can make you sick, but that it can show up in physical sorts of ways. So I think you're going to start to see more over the next few years. And I think mental health and uh, burnout are real issues. So I'm not trying to demean that, but I think there hasn't been space for what are the physical manifestations of stress and chronic, you know, pushing yourself or or chronic fatigue that comes from stress in the workplace. And that's really what I think is different. Have you struggled with your mental health at various times? Yeah, you know, mine I think was more physical. I think because I I didn't acknowledge or I didn't I didn't have the tools to really understand what was happening. I think the burnout. I've definitely gone through periods of burnout, but because I believed, right, working was my superpower, I don't think I acknowledged <laughs> in those ways, right? Which is why I've been out of corporate as I've kind of done some of this research. And so had I known some of this, had I had the language for it, I think I might have been more open or more, you know, addressed like the real states of burnout that I was feeling because they were deep. But again, I just kind of pushed through them or ignored them, which is not a healthy way to live at all and not anything I would tell the women I work with to do. Yeah. Huh. So let's end on a practical note. You know, I, I think that there are probably many people listening who are resonating with this, but thinking, I want to make this work. Like, is there any way I can make this work? How can I protect myself and take care of myself while still achieving my dreams? Is that even possible? Yeah, I, I do think it's possible, right? I think the moment that we're in, so the acknowledgement that's happening is really important because I think that when you are not connected to the reality around you or what your experience is so different than the reality around you, it can really be crazy making, right? It can <laughs> really feel like a different kind of struggle. So I think that's really important. And that's this moment that we're in. I think, you know, taking breaks and coming out of COVID in some ways, you know, what COVID brought was, again, that gift of, you know, our personal lives and our professional lives are all much more mingled than we've ever acknowledged before. (laughs) And it's okay to take breaks. And we are people, you know, not just workers. And we need to understand that and talk about that. So I think that's more prevalent. And for the women I work with, I really push them hard on find community, whatever that means for you, right? Whether that is a church group, whether that is a mom's club, whether that is a library, you know, book club, (laughs) but we need community because we need to have these conversations. And I think that sense of isolation that a lot of people feel when they're rising, 
that anxiety around that, the loneliness that they feel that, that this is just me, I think we need to find ways to really combat that. So I think I use the language of power of me and the power of we. You need to figure out for yourself what your limits are, what your boundaries are, you know, what you want to shed for yourself. And that's the power of me, like the work that you need to do on yourself. But then you need to find the power of we, because this is a very lonely sort of life that a lot of us are living, especially at work. And so we need to change that. If you were to go back to Deloitte next week, what would you do differently? I think I've just changed as a human being, right? (laughs) What I value, how I work, you know, the space it takes up in my life, even my priorities. Like I, I do a lot of writing now. I think I was very driven. I, I'm still driven, but driven in a different way. Like there was a real sense of having to be the best, you know, when when I was in my corporate world, mm-hmm. rising quickly, right? Making partner quickly, even within the partnership, rising quickly. Like those validations and metrics were not just outside metrics. They were really things I believed. And I think they're just not as important to me anymore. I don't have this desire to be the best like in anything. Like I, I don't need that anymore. It's more important that I feel good about my life and that I am setting boundaries and that I'm living the life that I want to live. So it's interesting. People have asked me that. I think I could go back and I would do it differently. But as a result, I think I might even be more successful. Exactly, <laughs> right. When when you set those boundaries, people tend to you know really thrive and they do better and they're clear about who they are. Yep. So yeah, it's an interesting question and, and one that I, I would do it differently. But I think it's because of what I believe and how I know how I need to live in order to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I now see success as tied to health as well, right? Success for me before 10 years ago was rising, was how well I was getting paid, was right, you know, how many cars I could buy. It was like these external metrics. And now I realize that success is so tied to health for me and I can't have success without, you know, physical health. And so that for me became a very different sort of barometer. Health is wealth. That's what my dad used yeah. to tell me. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much, Deepa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.